0: I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Now, we all understand by now what social distancing is like and how to keep ourselves in isolation. It's what we had to do for much of the pandemic to stay healthy. But social isolation can lead to loneliness, which health experts say is a cause for concern. Now, recently, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy raised a call to address, uh, to action addressing a public health crisis, a so called loneliness epidemic that can impact both our physical and our mental health. So today, we want to check in with groups around the city working to build social connections among people of all ages. We're joined first by Eve Escalante, who's a clinical social worker at Rush University Medical Center. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: I think everyone has felt lonely before, Eve. But, um, you know, it it can seem intuitive to, to know when you feel lonely. But can you talk about the actual symptoms of loneliness?
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, I think it's helpful to think about the distinction between loneliness and social isolation. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, but there actually is a difference. Okay. Um, so social isolation is something that actually is um, more, more something we can measure. It's objective. So it's really more of um, a, a lack of connection with, with individuals that we can actually measure and put them more of a number, too, Mm -hmm. whereas loneliness is really more of the feeling. So it's something that, um, you know, is a little bit harder to describe. Um, And something that we don't always think about is that people who um, are actually really surrounded by a lot of people can experience feelings of loneliness. So you can have a lot of friends. You can have a lot of family. You can be, you know, going to work every day and surrounded by people but still experience feelings of loneliness. And we'll
0: talk some more about that. I'm, I'm glad you made the distinction between social isolation and loneliness, Now, since loneliness is the feeling, talk to me about the difference then between like loneliness and depression or anxiety.
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, depression and anxiety are things that, you know, have more of symptoms that come along with them. So those are things that we can look at over time. Um, uh, You know, depression uh, has symptoms that come along with uh, things that are like, you know, lack of sleep or changes in sleep, uh, changes in appetite, um, feelings of guilt, feelings of worthlessness. Um, Anxiety is, you know, uh, differentiated by normal day-to-day stress because it's something that is out of our control or, you know, worrying to the level of, um, you know, impacting our mood or impacting our day-to-day functioning. Um, Loneliness is that feeling more of just um, really feeling disconnected from the others around us. Um, And I think it's... uh, you know it's it's a feeling that's normal to experience. Um, but I think one of the things that we want to look at is is it something that's distressing to us? So if it's going on for a period of time that you know has has gone long enough where it's impacting our functioning mm-hmm. um, or impacting our health, um, because now there is research that's looking at how does loneliness or prolonged social isolation impact our health. That's when we want to begin to talk to someone about it.
0: And some stats to support that loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 26 and 29 percent, respectively. And uh, lacking social connection can actually increase the risk for premature death as much as smoking, up to 15 cigarettes a day.
1: Yeah, a pack of cigarettes a day. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this might be a silly question, Eve, but, uh, you know, is it healthy to feel lonely from time to time? I think of the fact that, you know, I'm a parent of two teens and I, I often throughout the years have told them, you know, kids classic, I'm bored, I'm bored, right? And I've told them from time to time, like, oh, it's okay, sometimes you're going to be bored. You're yeah. going to be bored sometimes and that's perfectly fine. Does this work in the same way?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure if the word we would use is healthy, but I think it's very normal. Okay. Um, and so I think that, you know, in the pandemic, I obviously highlighted that experience that we all had of feeling a little bit disconnected from from people or from experiences that we were having day to day. I think one of the things that we've sort of lost touch with is the idea that, you know, it's it's not only a normal human experience, like I just mentioned, but I think it's really important to foster relationships with ourselves to try to figure out what is it that brings us meaning and purpose. Mm. Um and that's also a helpful distinction. I was having a conversation with an older adult um talking with him about the fact that during the pandemic, you know, because some of these stats can scare us yes, a little bit.
0: Absolutely. And
1: so I think it's important to to really reinforce the fact that, um, you know, these longer term health impacts start to turn take place really when it's been a prolonged period of social isolation so this isn't after you know a couple of weeks or something like that. This gentleman said to me you know am I am I should I be worried about the fact that during the pandemic, he said, I actually, you know, I I stopped working, I retired. He said, and I actually see people a lot less. He Mm -hmm. said, but I've begun to take up new hobbies where I've found so much meaning and connection with myself. Mm. He said, I am actually, you know, enjoying all these Netflix series. I'm cooking. I'm I'm finding all these new ways that I'm finding meaning and purpose within myself. And the question really that we processed more was, is that distressing to you? And he said, no, actually, I still, you know, hang out with people here and there, but I have this newfound relationship with myself. And so I think that's the key question is, is the experience feeling distressing or not?
0: Yeah. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy says, loneliness, isolation, and this lack of connection in our country, it's become a public health crisis. Now, what do you think about that? Is is it because of that prolonged period that you were just describing? Is that what when we got into crisis mode?
1: I, I think so, but I also think that, you know, in in some ways, you know, we don't pay attention to things until they're labeled as a public health crisis. And so, you know, uh, you know unfortunately, it's taken us to get to that point until we're yeah. paying attention to this. And that's when we then start to fund things and put people behind them and put policies behind them.
0: Also in his uh, health advisory, Dr. Vivek Murthy said, quote, we must prioritize building social connection the same way that we've prioritized other critical public health issues like tobacco, obesity, Mm -hmm. substance use disorders, right? Mm -hmm. So I I think he's making a similar point. Sure. What needs to change or happen to to start making connection a priority, Eve?
1: You know, I think one of the the biggest fundamental shifts that we need in our society is to sort of combat this idea of independence. We live in a society that so values the idea of independence, uh, versus independence mm-hmm. or uh, excuse me, versus interdependence and reliance on others. You know, we have this idea that you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, you figure stuff out, you don't talk about what's wrong. Um, and obviously I'm a, I'm a social worker, so I, I, I combat that every day. Yeah. Um, you know in in a micro and meso and macro level but um i think that's really what has to change is this idea that we are unique in feelings of loneliness um or in 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 any difficulty or struggle that we're going through and so you know one of the recommendations I know is to deepen our knowledge. That's having conversations like we're having and and putting it out there. Um, and it has to be backed then by by action, right? By funding and by people to work on these things and by looking at innovation and how we can use our resources. But I guess I, I really do feel like it needs to be a fundamental shift in our society around thinking that we don't need others and that we don't need to rely on others because yeah. we we really do. we need we need each other in every way.
0: You're very involved with uh, Russia's Center for Excellence in Aging. So you are working with older people who are often at risk of mm-hmm. social isolation and those feelings of loneliness that we talked about. Why is that the case? Why
1: are they at higher risk? Yeah. Um, I think that, well, Rush is really focused on uh, older adults who are living on the west side. so. Th- for myself, more older adults, but that's our sort of catchment area and anchor mission. Um, and what we're hearing from, you know, those older adults living in that, in that community is that obviously there's been disinvestment for, for many, many years in that community. Um, and we know that older adults, you know, despite Having fewer relationships, those relationships tend to be much deeper and have more meaning in older adulthood. Um, so I think we have to work against that sort of ageist idea. Mm-hmm. But having said that, we do know that older adults also have higher risk of social isolation. They're retired, um oftentimes they are losing the people that are, that are important to them. Um, if they're experiencing cognitive changes or changes with hearing or vision or things like that, that puts them at higher risk. But the individuals that we're working with that rush that live in these communities are also on top of that experiencing, you know, um, really big concerns around safety. So we're telling somebody that's an older adult, well, just go for a walk and just meet people in your neighborhood. Well, how do you do that when there's a concern for your basic safety and getting out and about? How do you do that if your sidewalks aren't functional? Right. I go to the grocery store and meet up with people. Well, if you live in a food desert, how do you do that? Um, there's no transportation. There's a lack of infrastructure. So we're working with the Center for Excellence in Aging really at, um, you know, the, the the micro level, so mm-hmm. working individually with people and then also on more of a policy level to see how do we influence, um, you know, the policies that will make these um, these environments and neighborhoods more accessible to older adults. Uh, I think the other thing that we're looking at is how do we, you know, as a as healthcare, that's my lens from a healthcare institution. Right. How do we make programs accessible to older adults? We have this idea that I'm going to build a program and people will just come to me. Right. As a healthcare institution, I'm going to sort of build this thing and they'll come. What we really have to do is try to figure out how do we how do we go to people, meet them where they are. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: We heard from a recent Newsletter subscriber named Miss Bindi Bitterman, who uh, wanted to weigh in on the conversation. Now, she's 92, and she's lived in a group situation for seven years now. And she says that her neighbors are quick to emotionally support her. This line from her comment, though, is what stuck out to me. Uh, she said, quote, growing old is scary enough. Growing old without close companionship is murder, mm. end quote. Thoughts? I mean, you just did a deep sigh yeah. there.
1: Yeah, it's tragic. It, it really is. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen during the pandemic is that the ways in which people or older, older adults especially connected organically with people was broken down. Um, you know, and as the world created new ways for us to connect with others, right? So all of all, everything went virtual, for example. Yeah. We didn't really think about how that impacted older adults. Did we give them the same technology? Did we give them the same accessibility to be able to connect with their neighbors, for example, in the same way?
0: Any suggestions for those of us who are, are worried about and, and feeling maybe guilt uh, for someone else's loneliness? You know, sometimes I think of my parents' who are, you know, they're older now, Um, they don't live together, they are separate. Um, And, you know, just as as they age, I feel this guilt for not being very close. You know, they live in another country. um, And I'm not sure how to combat that. You know, sometimes I'll call, you know, other family members to go check on my dad or, you know, kind of weigh in on this or that. But from there on, I feel kind of helpless. Yeah. You know, I I think
1: in the in the social work world we we talk a lot about how to manage feelings of helplessness and hopelessness so this is something that we talk about on a pretty day-to-day basis. Yeah. I think one of the things that's been helpful to me is starting where you are. You know, whether that's with an older adult or a younger adult or whoever it is, someone you don't even know. There are opportunities for us to connect with others everywhere we go. And you know, we're all just one person, but we all are one person. And so There are opportunities for us to connect organically and in meaningful ways, you know, day to day. And so I I think just start starting with what's around you, starting with the problem that you see right before you.
0: When do you feel most lonely? And as someone who studies this, how do you overcome your feelings of loneliness? Mm. Um, I think, you know
1: the work that we do in terms of just my own work and in terms of the profession of social work can be a a hard place to be. Um, And I think what brings that on generally is the feeling that we are often sitting with people. Our job isn't really to, our job is to create meaningful change, of course, but oftentimes that involves just sitting with people that are in situations that I I can't do anything about Mm -hmm. and holding space for them. And so that can bring on a lot of, um, you know, compassion fatigue. And I think what we've done to combat that at least you know in my in my workplace is to create spaces for us to come together in community to to talk about how we're managing those feelings. Um, so that I think can be a lonely place. Um, but yeah. creating community around that again, not that there's anything we can do to to change you know again disinvestment in these communities. Um, but that's been something that that has been helpful is to create that space to be able to process it.
0: So you've got the ears of a lot of listeners right now, so what do you want them to remember? The next time they find themselves feeling a little lonely?
1: I think, again, to look at what would bring them meaning and purpose, I think starting small and sustainable. So I think, you know, if I'm feeling lonely and I try to join 10 classes or try to start, you know, this gigantic goal of connecting with all these different people, that's probably not going to be a sustainable goal for me. So looking at, you know, both new opportunities, something new but small. And also looking at old connections and seeing is there something from my past that brought me meaning and purpose and, and happiness that I might be able to connect with. And also looking at, like we just talked about, is there a way that I could reconnect with something or someone who also would benefit from that connection? Yeah.
0: Great tips. That's Eve Escalante, Manager of Program Innovation with Social Work and Community Health at Rush University Medical Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're back now with more Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Social connection is one of the best ways to combat isolation and loneliness. With different programs, classes, groups, and organizations around the area, there are a lot of opportunities to get involved in your community. Joining us now to tell us about one of them is Jeremy Foster, who's president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Metropolitan Chicago. Welcome, Jeremy. Good afternoon. Good to see you. you. So your organization is offering uh, mentorship to young kids, as we know. So, what have you noticed about the the toll that loneliness and social isolation has on that age group?
2: It, it's, I'd say, it's not only the children; uh, it's the parents of our children as well, uh, and also our volunteers, because um, human connections at the core, uh, uh, you know, of our community. And so, we we've seen it really impact, you know, our 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 most precious stakeholders in the organization. Wow.
0: Tell us more about how mentorship works in the organization.
2: Yeah. So it, it's, it's as deep and connected uh, to another human being as you can get. And so we pair one on one, a caring adult volunteer with a child. Uh, it transcends friendship. It's really about family. They get connected not only to the child, but the parent and caretaker mm-hmm. and they see that child consistently. And over a series of years, we just had a graduation where we had a slew of matches that were eight and 10 years wow. together.
0: That's great and beneficial, I would think.
2: Oh, transformative.
0: Wow. So what impact have you seen uh, mentorship have on both the mentor and the mentee? Talk about both sides.
2: Yeah, I think just purely from a mental health standpoint, right? It's just good to be around each other, especially coming out of a pandemic when, mm-hmm. when you were, um, you know, isolated from each other. And I know there's a difference between isolation and loneliness, yes. but that connection is so fundamental to how we operate. But also when we talk to you know our, our volunteers who come in, because we get a lot of folks that move in from outside of Chicago, one of the number one things they say is they join Big Brothers Big Sisters to find a sense of community and connection. Really? Uh, and they chose this organization because how deeply you do get connected to a young person. And what it does for a young person, right, opens up avenues and allows them to realize their full potential. It's pretty remarkable.
0: So it's helping your group uh, or groups like yours, I should say, to combat feelings of loneliness.
2: Every day. I mean, it's a, it's central to, to what we do.
0: What's been your own experience with mentorship?
2: Uh, I would not be in the role that I am without uh, a mentor. Uh, strong family, two parents, large, large household, first to go to college uh, in my family, but it was a 70-year-old lady that ran a community center I grew up in. I grew up as a government cheese food stamp kid, uh, and she planted a seed and said, you'd be great running this organization. It was an it was a after-school program I went to. It wasn't even mm-hmm. on the
0: radar. I love how you still remember that.
2: It's, it's there. Yeah. Right? That's why I'm sitting here.
0: So, what advice then would you have for younger and older folks listening to us who right now might be feeling a little lonely? What would you say?
2: Get involved in your community, right? There's really no substitute for being around other people. Um, just think of how you feel when you've had a great conversation, like an actual conversation. I want you to pay attention to that next time. How you actually feel out of that. It's completely different than texting somebody or FaceTiming or whatever you do to stay connected is just get involved and get involved with other people. Uh, it does so much for you physically, socially, emotionally. And of course, uh, it's one of the central ways to combat loneliness.
0: Yeah, we've heard, we've all heard the saying, you know, folks might not remember things that you do but they definitely will remember how you made them feel.
2: Oh my gosh, that's no truer words have ever been spoken.
0: Yeah, for sure. So how can folks who are interested and want to and want to get involved in, in Big Brothers Big Sisters? How can they join up?
2: Uh, visit the website. So it's uh, bbbschgo.org. That's the first place to start. It's uh, thumb friendly if you do it on your mobile or click through friendly to find out the opportunities cuz we have children uh, in all four counties, Chicago proper, but throughout Chicagoland, we have kids waiting, and we would love to have more uh, adults um, get involved in our young people's lives.
0: Yeah. Do you have an idea of how many are waiting? What's the need like?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the actual wait list is around 300 children. Wow. The reality is there's a lot more. We we're very careful of you know raising the flag because we we'll we'll get thousands more families that come to us.
0: What's the time commitment like for folks who aren't aware and they're interested in signing up? If you yeah, want so, to become a mentor.
2: Yeah, great great question. It's it's actually the number one thing people ask. And it's funny when you become a big, it's like, oh, it's actually not that much time because your little, as we call them, they become integrated into your life. So if you're going to run to the grocery store, you pick up your little uh, and do things like that. And so it's a couple times a month, um, a few hours each time, picking up your little. And we ask for a year commitment. Doing yeah. that. But I'll tell you that you, my wife's been doing it now. She's four years already with her little sister. It's incredible how fast that. time flies.
0: Jeremy Foster is uh, president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Metropolitan Chicago. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to hear now from a group called One Table, which works to bring people together for Shabbat dinners every week. Jacob Rosenblum is a One Table Shabbat dinner host. Hey, Jacob. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the show. And Julia Logan-LeBeau is Director of Impact and Learning at One Table. Welcome to Reset, Julia.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So for people who aren't familiar with the Jewish tradition of Shabbat, what is it?
3: Yeah, so Shabbat is really an opportunity to gather and be in community. Um, we focus specifically on Friday night dinners, which is often invo- involves ritual. It involves good food, delicious bread like challah. Um, And then sort of the more traditional, you know, entire definition of Shabbat is the 25 hours from um, sundown Friday night to sundown on Saturday.
0: So, uh, Jacob, social connection, it seems to be right at the heart of what Shabbat is. Absolutely. How has it helped you feel more connected to others?
4: Shabbat has, especially during COVID lockdowns, uh, provided a sense of temporality to my life that was completely missing Uh, when we were fully locked down. So to realize that, you know, it's Sunday and maybe my partner and I will just sit down for uh, a one-table Shabbat dinner alone uh, actually helped me realize that it is the end of the week, that a week has passed, even though it didn't feel like that in lockdown, um, and really find an intentional space to connect with each other.
0: What about you, Julia?
3: Yeah, so I think what we find for for the the impact of these dinners is that it's an opportunity to take a deep breath at the end of the week to be in community mm-hmm. to you know one of the recommendations from Dr. Murthy was to put our like renegotiate a relationship with technology absolutely, and what we find so much is that our participants share. I, this was the first meal of the week that I wasn't sitting in front of a TV sort of shoveling food into my face. Which happens often, right? Yeah. Is it just me? Yeah. No, <laughs> it's not just you. It's definitely lots and lots of cramming people. some, like getting
0: my food ready to set up next to a screen of some kind. Exactly. You know, you know, from yeah. an iPad to a laptop to a television. Yes. <laughs> um, how did you first get involved with yeah. One Table?
3: So I actually was a guest at a dinner. I was at a class and a, um, they're talking about how wonderful Shabbat dinner is. And I literally raised my hand and I said, sign me up. I would love to be a guest at a Shabbat dinner. And uh, someone came up to me and invited me to her home for Shabbat. She was a total stranger to me. And that's – it was a one-table dinner. And I said I left her house and I felt – Like that, what you were just talking about. I felt so good. I felt like I was exploring my Jewish roots. I felt like I was making new friends. Mm -hmm. And from there, I continued to guest. I became a host. And then um, I started as our Chicago field manager. And then now I'm in this role overseeing our research and
4: evaluation.
0: And Jacob, what's it like for you, your experience hosting these dinners?
4: I have absolutely loved being a host. I've done it for many years. And I think it's an opportunity to not only see the people I love, but to invite them all to a space to meet each other. And I think one of the most rewarding things I've seen from hosting One Table Shabbats is that my friends who didn't know each other would become friends themselves and hang out without me. And ah, I loved seeing that.
0: I love that too, yeah, when that happens. Give us your origin story with One Table. How'd you get involved?
4: I also started as a guest. I was invited and I just saw the an immense capacity for anti-loneliness, honestly, of Mm. inviting everyone together. Is that the trajectory
0: that tends to happen? You come in as a guest and then you're like, I want to (laughs) stay. How do I get involved? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a Time Magazine article that looked at the daily routines and habits of happiness researchers. One thing that they all did was they met with friends three to four times a week. And we know that at one table you're doing at least once a week, right, with the Friday dinners. Do you think, uh, Jacob, that overcoming loneliness is as simple as that, just hanging out with friends, or does it go deeper?
4: I do think it goes deeper. I think it is very much um, a systematic issue in the United States. Um, I think, you know, if we had more affordable childcare, if we had uh, affordable housing, higher wages, people would have more opportunities to experience the haolam haba of Shabbat or the world to come, where we have more connection and we have more rest. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if we had more walkable neighborhoods, multifamily housing, to be physically closer, we would be able to get out of our houses and speak more to each other.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Julia? I mean, is is it just as simple as, as spending time with other people, hanging out with friends?
3: Yeah, I think there's a sort of a big ditto to what Jacob said. And and also what I see is that there's, and this is kind of the structure that One Table provides, is an, an invitation and saying, okay, on a Tuesday, I'm already starting to think about the guests I want to invite to my home, the menu I want to plan, or mm-hmm. the food I want to order in. And so really thinking about like what's the intention I want to carve out for myself this week. And sometimes it's, I want to be with 18 people at my house for a dinner. And sometimes it's, I just want to be with me and three other friends. Right. And so what does it look like? Also, I think that pe- piece of loneliness is thinking about the intention of how am I crafting the experience and the connection that I'm looking for as right. well.
0: And those periods of, of being by yourself, like that's okay. Yes. Right. Uh, what do you think, Jacob, are, are, are barriers to really finding solutions to loneliness? What's, you know, what's getting in the way?
4: I think that, um, you know, uh, Again, uh, there's this culture of um, independence that we have, that we want to have, you know, our section of land, that we want to have our nuclear family. But there are so many ways to connect with other people beyond that, where we are meeting in third spaces, meeting organically, working towards Zedek or justice that allows the world every day to feel more like Shabbat. And that really is the goal of Shabbat is to make to make you realize that the world could look this way mm-hmm. if we all just cared for each other more and were in more proximity with one another.
0: We're all nodding our heads at this table at that, Jacob, <laughs> plus one there. Um, you gather a lot of feedback, Julia, from participants of one table, and you look at how the dinners have really helped them you know, feel more co- uh, connected. Give us some more feedback that you've been hearing and, and data that suggests that.
3: Yeah, so we recently just added a question uh, measuring collective effervescence. Which sounds kind of wonky. Please explain. Yeah. What's collective effervescence? So really, it's if you've been to a sporting event, if you've been to a concert, you've felt this. And it's this feeling of connection to people at the event. And it's the feeling of a little bit of transcendence, like Mm -hmm. something sort of beyond us is going on here. That is so so
0: true. Everyone's in a great mood. People buy concert tickets, solo concert tickets, for that very reason, because you know you're just going to be surrounded by people who are fans of that same person, and it's just going to be this supportive vibe.
3: Yes, exactly. And that feeling can even happen at a Shabbat dinner, at a small dinner with friends, with family. And what we found was when we started asking this question is that our participants reported really high levels of collective effervescence meaning they scored high on this scale which was developed by a professor at University of Buffalo and that high collective effervescence scales is predicted of more positive emotions increased meaning in life higher levels of happiness and so for us we're like wow you know on when you think about Shabbat dinner you're mm-hmm. yes this makes sense being with friends and family at the end of the week a time together, that makes sense. But being able to see it reflected in these you know, validated measures is also really powerful. They're yeah. meeting new people. They're feeling less lonely.
0: I love that. So give us some advice then for the folks listening and feeling lonely right now. You first, Jacob.
4: Yeah. Shabbat is a lot about sacredness in time. And I think there is something really special about setting aside that time even once a week to intentionally reach out to people and connect and create that sacredness together. I think another uh, great opportunity for people to connect is to work toward ha'olam haba, to work toward the world to come together, to create the social conditions Mm -hmm. where we all, regardless of socioeconomic status, race, any sort of uh, predictor of uh, loneliness, can actually participate in civil society, can participate in actions of rest and relaxation uh, because it is not equally distributed in our society.
0: Julia, your advice?
3: Yeah, I think if you're looking to join a one table Shabbat dinner, you can go to our website. And
0: you don't have to be Jewish, right? Exactly.
3: You do not have to be Jewish. Anyone is welcome at the table. Um, And then I think beyond that, it really is finding community groups that you feel connected to that you want to explore. And that's a really wonderful way to combat loneliness.
0: We've been talking to Julia Logan LeBeau, who's One Table's Director of Impact and Learning, and Jacob Rosenblum, Shabbat Dinner host. Thank you both so much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Sasha. Thank you
0: so much.